0: You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. This episode, we have Amber Smith with us. Uh, She's phenomenal. Amazing lady. Uh, She was a Kiowa uh, helicopter pilot in Afghanistan and Iraq. So combat tours in both war zones. She was also uh, deputy secretary of defense for public affairs under the Trump administration. The author of the phenomenal book during uh, about her time as a Kiowa uh, pilot, danger close. And Amber, you got to tell everybody what do they need to know about the Kiowa platform, right? Because people people give a lot of lot of hoopla, a lot of attention to the Apache and to the Blackhawk. But tell everybody about what it, what it is to be in a Kiowa and what kind of stuff you were doing?
1: Well, I was grateful enough to get to fly the most amazing, badass helicopter in the Army's inventory at the time. It's a light attack reconnaissance helicopter. It's a two-seater. It's the co-pilot. We have a 15 gun. We have a rocket pod that carries high-explosive rockets. And then we can carry Hellfire missiles as well. But the best part of our job was who we worked for. We worked for Ground Force. uh, So... Infantry, Marines, special forces, NATO forces, um, in-country forces like the Iraqi Army or the Afghan um, National Army. And we fly extremely low level, just anywhere from 50 to 150 feet off of the ground. Um, so well within range of the enemy's weapon systems. And um, it's definitely down in the fight every day we go out on a mission.
0: So, I mean, there's there's flying close to the ground you know, like like Maverick in the recent Maverick where he's all, you know, doing the obstacle course thing or whatever, uh, and I spoke to an F-18 pilot who said, you got to understand, at that speed, you're in, the, you're in the dirt in, like, two seconds if you mess up, um, but you were not flying- Not much time a,
1: for mistakes, yeah.
0: Right, you were flying at a level where, I mean, you could basically see, like, someone's, you know, you see the color of someone's hair, right, or <laughs> their beard, I mean, 50, 100 feet off the ground, oh, yeah. you're not that high off the ground.
1: We're, we're very lofty. The intent behind that is that we do hunt for IEDs on the road ahead of convoys and um, we do, like I said, get into these close combat attacks when um, often we get called in to an enemy uh, firefight with friendly ground forces. So based off the range of our weapon systems, just by nature, uh, we have to be very close to the ground. And that does mean that it is an intense flight. It's an intense mission because, you know, you do have the hazard of the enemy of their weapon systems, but then you have all of those other hazards that come with flying so close to the ground. You heard in Iraq, wires used to be such a danger to it's and um, unfortunately resulted in you know, multiple, multiple kiowa crashes. So it was a pretty dangerous job.
0: Which, so like telephone wires, you're saying, like you would, you would actually have telephone to worry wires. about telephone yes. and comms wires. Yes,
1: yes. birds, telephone wires, t- cell phone towers, uh trees. Yes.
0: Wow, that's what. Remar- what kind of uh what kind of defensive armor do you have on? I mean, because I've, whenever I've seen photos of the of the kiowa. It's um, it's an agile platform, but it doesn't look like it's not. Uh, you, you know, when you see like an A-10 warthog, you're like, that thing looks like you could kick the crap out of it. You guys in the Kiowas, I assume yeah. you really had to avoid enemy fire.
1: The Kiowa could take a beating. It brought me home many times. Really? Uh, my aircraft got shot up when I was in Iraq and I had an AK-47 bullet land about 12 inches behind my spine. Um, thankfully, there was an armor plate behind um, the the back of our seat, and then underneath our seat as well. Uh, but we also had an armor panel that had an engine block. But get this, because of weight purposes, so we could carry more ammo, we would actually remove that ammo plates, uh, so the engine was less protected.
0: All right, So, Amber, you've seen the military from being a combat deployed. Uh, rotary aircraft warrior, if I may say. And you've also been somebody who's dealt with the DOD at the policy, communications, uh, deputy defense secretary level. So I think you're in a particular position to talk a bit about the, uh, the concerns over a military that is increasingly concerned with DEI, social justice, and... Wokeness, instead of being the most effective combat machinery for the defeat of enemies and defense of America possible, uh, what do you think of of that problem? The scale of it, the reality of it.
1: Well, I think it's incredibly dangerous to our national security, to the health of the fighting force as a whole, um, especially when we compare it to what our adversaries look like today. We have we face some very real threats. We inch closer to World War III on a daily basis with this administration and the threats that we're exposed to around the world. And what do we see our military doing? We see policies that are pushed down on the force that have the intent of dividing the force instead of unifying the force. And the military works because everyone is one. After basic training, everybody puts on the exact same uniform. And you put the American flag on your shoulder and you are a team. You're serving towards one purpose. And you do that by coming together. You don't sit there and focus on everyone's unique individuality um, and then talk about how other people may be a part of the problem. Um, And so it's really creating this softer generation of a military that we haven't really seen before and I think it's incredibly dangerous when we look at the attention and the training hours and the the shift of focus away from these priceless training hours to prepare for the mission to prepare. Um, to deter and then if necessary fight in some of these conflicts that are now being focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, extremism training, t- being soldiers being told that domestic terrorism is the biggest threat to military, um, pe- transgender policies, um, double standards for physical fitness tests, and the recruiting numbers are showing the damning effects that they're having on the military today. The Army missed their numbers by 15,000 soldiers in 2022. That's 25% below what they were looking to hit. That is absolutely damaging to our nation. It certainly shows the health of the force, and it's struggling right now. And when you start paying attention to some of the policies that are being forced on soldiers that are damaging morale, this is what you get, a woke military that is absolutely dangerous to recruitment, to retain to morale. And young Americans are saying, no, thanks for other opportunities.
0: It's really uh, sad when I hear people that have either gotten out recently Or serve for many years, um, and in some cases, friends of mine who did—I mean, more more combat deployments than than I feel like I I can even count when I try to run them all past them. I say, wait, weren't you? How many times were you in Iraq? How many times were you in Afghanistan? And they say not only would they not want to go back in, but that if their own son or or daughter uh, was thinking about uh, serving, that they would try to. Obviously, it's the you know the person's choice. Um, but that they would try to discourage them from joining with the military as it is today. I, I don't know if you've had that experience. I have many friends, particularly from the heavy combat branches, who say, "Nope, I wouldn't want my son joining up right now."
1: I have had so many of the exact same conversations, and it's it's terrifying for the military, the fighting force as a whole, and our national security. With when you when you put it in the perspective of what is our military. Supposed to do and how generous up to serve the country, but for me personally, it's it's um it's really sad to see a, a military that I served in for over seven and a half years. I did two combat deployments, one to Iraq, one to Afghanistan, and to see a military that is unrecognizable to the one that I served in, where we had a mission, we were focused, we were a team, we didn't nitpick each other about uh apart based on our differences um there was a standard and you had to meet it um it and then then guess what that wasn't the job for you and you went on and did something else now um, all of these lowered standards it's just it's absolutely creating resentment within the ranks and it's killing morale and people are saying maybe i should look elsewhere like what are these sacrifices living a life in the military Is you're missing birthdays, you're missing kids' graduations. You're like I've talked to soldiers who are like I'm I'm done watching my children grow up over Zoom, you know, and they are missing all of these life um, things that you these these life celebrations that anniversaries, weddings, funerals, like these times that you don't get back. and that sacrifice was always worth it to so many people. Who, And then they see the fall of Afghanistan. They see the no accountability. They see Secretary of Defense Austin testifying on Capitol Hill last week that he has zero regrets for the way that um, the withdrawal for Afghanistan happened and how the country collapsed and fell into the hands of Afghanistan. He saw that 13 U.S. service members were killed as a result of a suicide attack while they were guarding Hkaya. Um, Kabul International Airport during the withdrawal. So to hear leaders like that, that creates such a distrust of the commander to subordinate relationship that is absolutely vital to the success of the relationship um, to get soldiers to want to fight and win on the battlefield. is that trust with their leaders, which they have with senior uh, military officials and generals, um, you've lost the military. We live in extremely dangerous times right now. Um, in, in those recruitment numbers, like we'll see the, the next year coming up what those look like, but it's not going to look any better. Like I said, we had lost, um, uh, 15,000, uh, soldiers to their re- recruitment goals. The other branches, the only reason they made it was because they were pulling from their delayed entry programs. Uh, that means they're setting themselves up this year for an either rec- harder recruitment goal. So it is just, it is dangerous, dangerous times. And because there's no accountability, because of this toxic core leadership that refuses to look internally, you keep seeing when a Pentagon is questioned about any of their failures, all they do is look outward and they place blame elsewhere. It's never like, hey, maybe we should take a look at what we are doing that is causing some of these self-inflicted problems, um, and they won't do it.
0: Come back in a second here and talk about both uh, Ukraine uh, and also what it was like dealing with the press from the DOD during the Trump years. I, I, I bet that was sometimes very illuminating about their real goals and intentions. We'll come back to that in a second. But if you've never tried it before, folks, you got to get the MyPillow 2.0. Mike Lindell's team has done it again. The MyPillow, the thing that started it all, built it all originally. Well, now there's an update. The MyPillow 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow, but now has a brand new exclusive fabric that is made with temperature-regulating thread. You're going to find this MyPillow 2.0 to be the softest, smoothest, and coolest pillow you'll ever own. If you're constantly tossing and turning at night and flipping your pillow over, looking for a cool spot, those nights are over. The MyPillow 2.0 comes at a great deal right now with a buy one, get one free for a limited time and use my name as the promo code BUCK. MyPillow 2.0, temperature, regulating technology, and 100% made here in the USA. Plus, it has a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the Radio Listener Special Square, get this buy one, get one free offer on the MyPillow 2.0, enter promo code BUCK, that's promo code B-U-C-K, for the MyPillow 2.0, promo code B-U-C-K when you go to MyPillow.com. So, Amber, uh, let's, start with, uh, let's start with Ukraine. How do you think Biden and the DOD right now, I mean, he's commander in chief, right? And uh, you've got some interesting, interesting people who are, including uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Milley uh, and Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, who are making all kinds of decisions about this. It's one way of putting all this. Uh, how do you think they're doing so far? I mean, How does the picture look to you of U.S. support for the war in Ukraine 18 months in or f- 15 months in?
1: Well, I think that the United States military industrial complex, the Pentagon, um, many political leaders in Washington, D.C. are addicted to war. I think they're addicted to conflict. I think war has become big business, um, and that's extremely uh, dangerous for our nation. If you look at the withdrawal of Afghanistan, we shifted almost immediately towards a new conflict, a proxy war in Ukraine with Russia, and really a fight that is not within vital U.S. national security interests. This is a regional war between neighbors. The United States has already pump, uh, pumped in more money than it ever did in an annual. Um, amount for Afghanistan, so a war that we were fighting on the ground in Afghanistan, uh, and it's and it's just when is when is enough enough, uh, and I'm not happy with the status of how things are going with the war in Ukraine. Um, I think that we have some much more vital, nationality interests, some real threats that face our nation like China every single day, that threat grows, it increases on a daily basis. Um, And I think that the U.S. is preoccupied with fighting a proxy war in Ukraine with Russia right now.
0: You know, when I think back to, uh, I was in Afghanistan in 2010 and, and interfacing with uh, I, I was a very, you know, very low man in the hierarchy, but I was interfacing with the people who were, let's just say calling the shots in country for both the military, uh, and the intelligence, uh, agencies. And I was always, even at that stage and at that age, shocked at how everybody was repeating everybody else's lines, but everybody kind of knew that it wasn't really true. You know, um, all the mm-hmm. stuff about, oh, we we're we're making all these gains in this area and and we're, we're consolidating what we've done in that area. But when you actually talk to people who were there were dealing with it, like when I, when I met uh, with, a, with a couple of different ODAs, a couple of different uh, special forces teams, and I asked them, well, what do you guys think is going on? They're like, oh, well, you know, the big military assessment uh, versus what you were getting from, from door kickers who were living in combat outposts, it always felt like there was a huge disconnect. And I was there in 2010, and I was like, this is just not going to work. But if you told anybody that, or if you talked about that, um, you were kind of treated like you were disloyal to the American war effort there, or the NATO, as we know, war effort there, um, before the Ukraine war, right? This is what NATO existed for somehow. Um, do you feel like we're heading into the same trap uh, with uh, with Ukraine? Not obviously with, with our own forces deployed, but just with our diplomatic, economic, and materiel support to a war that, to me, looks like, It's going to go on for years. And we're talking about we better start thinking about our support for Ukraine with a T, not a B, as in a trillion, two trillion. Well, you think it's heading that way or are you are you have any faith that maybe they'll cut it off before that?
1: Well, to your point about Afghanistan and and people sort of saying that you're disloyal, if you sort of have an opposing view to Push poking her to to potentially start World War Three with a nuclear power. There's nothing more dangerous than a weak army with nuclear power, and that's where we keep pushing this war. Um, and so, yeah, just to your point about um, speaking out in opposition to, hey, maybe we should be pushing a peace agreement between the two nations instead of pushing more war. It's like the thing that um, you know, the Pentagon and certain leaders in Washington, D.C. to do. They throw money at the problem. And we have a lot of old in D.C. that cannot get the cold out of their head. So you rush up into the conversation and it's, nope, you know, we're going to throw absolutely anything and everything at Russia. And it's, it's like they get tunnel vision if you bring up the word, Russia. Guess what? Russia is a near-peer adversary in a conflict with a, a regional conflict right now. Who is a bigger threat to us than Russia right now? China. Who, where geographically is the United States primarily focused on right now? Russia. Okay, the United States military cannot Uh, is not capable of fighting a two-front war right now. So when we're sending all of our ammunition, you know, brigades of our military um, into Poland, into Romania, in these other areas around Ukraine, helping train in Ukraine, um, depleting our own United States ammunition stockpile that we will likely need in the very near future, It's just really not smart decision-making. I can't say I'm very surprised, but focusing on Russia when we have such a very near threat with China, which is no longer a near peer, China's a peer adversary. Everybody wants to focus on Russia and Washington, D.C. Everybody wants to throw hundreds of billions of dollars their way. And it's absolutely a disgrace for U.S. leadership who is tasked with protecting the American people to put us in harm's way, the way that they are today with how they're handling the war with Russia.
0: Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, Okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Senator Lindsey Graham recently said he's definitely open to the idea of putting U.S. uh, troops in Taiwan, creating a U.S. military presence on that island. What do you think about that?
1: Does he want an immediate war with China? Because guess what? That's not going to look like the wars that he was pushing in Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years. That's going to look like a war to end all wars.
0: It's going to get very ugly very quickly. That is very true. I'm I'm a little bit surprised always, and this is more of just a general political uh, feeling, that Lindsey Graham is always so, he, he's always treated by conservatives and conservative media for the most part with with some kind of reverence and this is a guy who i've never seen him refer to a war that other people will fight with any trepidation whatsoever like there's never a sense when lindsey graham talks about us troops going somewhere to fight he's not going anywhere to fight his children aren't going anywhere to fight he doesn't actually have any children but you know he's not going anywhere and you sit there and you say well why is he getting reelected so many times by the people of south carolina You know, what what has to happen here? I mean, I I just I'm surprised that his his constant push for more expenditure of men and materiel um, in conflict isn't a bigger problem for conservatives who are taking more of a here at home approach.
1: Yeah, because it's just an interview to him, right? It's just another campaign cycle. It's just another rally cry. It's not like you said, it's not his kids. It's not his money. He's uh it's not his time away. Um, he gets to go on these congressionally sponsored trips into a war zone, take the photos, get the um, you know special treatment and say that he's been to a war zone and he gets to see what it's really like. But that's not actually what real war is like. Politicians have got to get back to this stance where war is a last resort. It is a very last resort Um people's lives shouldn't be so loosely thrown out to fight these wars. Um, And that sort of policy stance for foreign policy and conflicts and wars that we've seen around the world, um, that is taking a toll on our military. It's completely damaging the all-volunteer force. Um, I I mean, I think it's scary times. of the all volunteer force and how long that's going to stick around for, which is seriously going to ch- change some things. And if a war with China breaks out, that's exactly we will be looking at. which Nobody wants to talk about, but that's the reality.
0: Yeah, I just, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm down here in, in in Florida, and you know, if if we, if you had the the Chinese, it was like a Red Dawn situation, where I think it was actually North Korea in the remake, right? If they started. You know, setting up landing craft or whatever on the on the beaches here of, uh, of of South Beach, I'd be like, "All right, let's go." You know, mount up. We have to fight. But on the other side of of that equation, if someone told me that I, you know, some future child of mine is uh, is eighteen years old, if my son uh, son to be um, said, "I want to go and help out with the uh, U.S. war effort," assuming we deployed troops, I know we haven't, at least officially, deployed any troops in Ukraine but I want to go fight for Ukrainian independence. I'd be like, do not join the military if you want to fight for Ukrainian independence. Like, I don't know, I don't know what else to say. It, it, to me, if that's our fight, it feels like people keep bringing this up, say, well, what if a NATO country's next? We have a treaty with those countries. We have a written promise with those countries that says, if X, then Y. We don't have that with Ukraine.
1: Exactly. So I, I don't know why exactly. these things keep getting
0: conflated.
1: Yeah, people seem to be missing that point of, absolutely, we have an obligation to NATO. Uh, Putin is not invading a NATO country. If that should happen, of course, the United States would protect our NATO ally. ally. Um, that's not what's happening right now. And so that's why I say it's produ- provocative that the United States wants to fight this proxy war with Russia. It's pushing a nu- the biggest nuclear power in the world. And it is it is not in the best interest of the security of our nation, of the safety of our nation. And too many people, it's almost like Ukraine is the next, you see the the um, blue and yellow flags waving and the sunflowers. It's like the new thing that people want to support without accepting what the reality of a war in Ukraine against Russia actually means. Like yeah. how much farther do you think we're going to go before the United States commits some sort of U.S. ground force? And then guess what? then we're at war with Russia. Then it's no longer, we we no longer get to say, oh, we're supplying equipment. Oh, we're supplying training. Oh, we're supplying medical care. No, we're not. We're at war with Russia.
0: And the devastating effects of of that, if the war were to expand, because Russia would obviously feel that it's an exit, now it faces a true existential threat. The Russians also view Ukraine as existential to their long-term survival. We don't really get that part of it. This is not a justification of the aggression. It's just the understanding of the Russian perception of the issue, right? So the Russians view Absolutely. a Ukraine that is de facto or, you know, close, basically de facto in NATO or actually in NATO, which some people have talked about as something that's completely unacceptable for their long-term strategic interest in the survival of the Russian Federation. Point being, they'll keep fighting this out as long as they have to. I mean, they don't see this as a you know, we're just going to give up because this is too costly for us. Now, there might be a negotiation it's, that it's, could end this, and that's what I think should be pursued, but there seems to be very little interest in even talking about these days and, and I think that from the administration exactly. the people in, in Washington, it's it's really disconcerting after 20 years of war where it was very clear to people, you were there, I was there, very clear that this wasn't going to be the thing that they thought it was going to be. It's like we haven't learned the lesson, but I want to come back and actually ask you um, uh, about some trans agenda issues here in just a second. But I've got to ask everybody at home, how are your energy levels these days? Because you got to check out chalk. Chalk is an amazing supplement company that brings your energy levels back to optimum. They spent years looking for the right helpful ingredients and organized them into products, especially made for men and women you're looking for an answer that's a little more developed than coffee cup number five of the day, which is what I've had to do in the past, but not anymore, check out Chalk's male vitality stack or the female vitality stack. Each one is formulated to help maximize your everyday potential. The website's very simple, Chalks, qcom Use my name, Buck, when you make your first purchase on the site. Get 35% off any Chalk subscription for life. That's for life, 35% off. Go to Chalks, qcom Use my name, Buck, as your promo code. Subscription can be canceled at any time, but people try this product. They love it. you are not going to want to cancel it. Check out chalk, C-H-O-Q.com. Okay. I got to ask this before. We want to talk about some fun, happy things too, Amber. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have you weigh in uh, with, weigh in as you know, I'm, I'm newly married. And one thing that we keep talking about is what kind of dog we can get. And I know your team bulldog, which is amazing. So we're going to have to talk about Oh, this.
1: yeah. Yeah,
0: Team Bulldogs. <laughs> we're going to have a Bulldog discussion in a second. Um, and, and also just want to ask what, what your plans are here going forward and, and other things, other projects you're going to be involved in. But, you know, there's so much attention now to trans stuff in sports, the trans community in sports. And you've seen him recently, uh, Megan Rapino, for example, of you know, very left-wing, became kind of famous for being a, really a left-wing voice in the women's national soccer team. Um, And saying that like they don't make enough money, even though they're actually paid disproportionately to what they bring in in terms of revenue. But, you know, who cares about things like math? Uh, She thinks that trans men should be able to compete against women now in soccer, to which I say, like, I'm I'm a guy who spent way too much time at a desk the last 10 years. Um, I would toss around members of the women's national soccer team on a soccer field still to this day, having played at like a reasonable high school level like a long time ago. It's crazy. We all know it's crazy in sports. What is the situation now in, in the military, though, for how the issue is is handled? I mean, because if you're a if you're a man who becomes a trans female, are you still in an Are you kept in a male unit and male barracks? Like, how do they handle that? What's policy?
1: So the policy, the Department of Defense policy for transgenders is that they can serve in their preferred gender. So, once they go through the transition process and they then are allowed to put their preferred gender on their military ID card, once they have that ID card, they are allowed to shower. And, like a man that now says he's a transgender woman, if I said that right, is now allowed to shower in the women's soccer room. They're allowed to use the women's bathroom, sleep in women's quarters. They are treated as though they are a woman. Uh, that is the policy. And then they have to meet um, whatever female versus male standards exist.
0: Uh, wait, wait, I, I got to ask. how. Yeah, how, I'm, I'm just processing this. How what has to happen for them to even like qualify? Do they is it just a do you have to meet with a base psychologist or something you know to to go or can you just say no i'm i'm a woman now and therefore the military will treat me as a woman
1: there's a process you have to meet with a doctor but not every transgender um that exists out there or wants to transition has gender dysphoria some do but some don't and it does it's, it doesn't matter like regardless of if you have it or not um you're still allowed to transition if you speak with your doctor and then you speak with your commander. And you, you, it takes away considerable amount of time, um, a soldier who is in that process of transitioning. Hormones, surgeries, um, the time it takes with all of the administration things, you missing training. Um, and then the team grows without you, right? But then you have to be fully accepted back as soon as you come back. Um, so it does not add... If the military had like a litmus test for pretty much everything they do and said, does this policy make us a stronger fighting force? Does this make us more likely to win a war against China? Does this make us a more lethal, you know, more elite fighting force in the world? If the answer is no, maybe they should look twice at forcing those policies on the entire force. But here is the like kicker, of equality, right? Which is what the Biden administration is trying to do with this executive order that they pushed down to the Department of Defense when they then allowed transgenders to serve openly. So they fully, you know, have are on board with everything transgender. The selective service, what all men 18 to 25 in this country have to sign up for within 30 days of their 18th birthday, uh Men, men have to sign up for the Selective service. Now, the Selective service only says your birth sex. So only men born in their biologi- biological sex as a man have to sign up for the draft. So women who transition and become men, they do not have to sign up for the draft, but men who become women are still required to sign up for the draft. So it's like, which one do they see? So are they saying that like transgender women are really men according to the selective service if a draft was ever to happen? Or there's just this like complete double standard there, which happens a lot when some of these policies are shoved down, they don't think in third order effects of the decisions. But it's like, as a society, it's like, when are we going to accept reality just like what you were talking about with ukraine afghanistan enrolls everybody went and testified up on capitol hill um like through the lens of these rose-colored glasses they painted this pretty picture of what afghanistan looked like but in reality we all knew afghanistan wasn't gonna stand on its two feet without the united states military and the u.s dollar ukraine everybody knows what happens as soon as the united states leaves and quits um standing up ukraine you can know that Russia is the enemy and wish that this was not happening to Ukraine. But you can also live in the reality of the situation. And it's the same thing with transgenders. The military is focusing so much money, so much time, and so, and, and training, taking away training, um, to focus and give special treatment to the transgender demographic. The military, and they do so by saying, Well, we want to make sure that we are recruiting to 100% of the population. The military has never been able to recruit to 100% of the population, they, they're at about you know less than 25% of young Americans who are eligible to serve today. So it's like, How about we focus um, on the problems that exist in the military today on fixing those instead of contributing more problems? to the military. Yes, I, I
0: think that would make a whole lot of sense. I want to come back. We'll talk with uh, Amber here in a second about just some, some more general, some more general topics, you know, maybe we'll take a little trip down memory lane too. We'll get to that in just a moment. I want to tell everybody about the Tunnels of Towers Foundation. The foundation honors fallen and severely injured heroes and their families with mortgage-free homes. This year alone, hundreds of gold star on fallen first responder families with young children and our nation's most severely injured veterans and first responders are receiving homes. More than 500 homeless veterans received housing and services last year, and more than 1,500 are receiving housing and services this year. This coming Memorial Day, all the brave men and women lost since 9-11 in the War on Terror are having their names read aloud in a Tunnel to Towers ceremony in our nation's capital. Through the Tunnel to Towers 9-11 Institute, the Foundation's educating kids in kindergarten through 12th grade about our nation's darkest day. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good. Please help America to never forget its greatest heroes. Join me in donating $11 a month to Tonta Towers at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T.org. All right, Amber, so I, I got to ask, your, your husband is a, a fighter pilot. What is, he, uh, is he, what, what is he flying? What was he flying? Is he an F-18 guy?
1: Oh, he flies the best thing out there, a helicopter. He's not a fighter pilot.
0: He's a helicopter pilot. Oh, he's also. <laughs> he's a helicopter I he pilot. Fixed. Yeah. See, I had all these jokes with like, if, you know, if he like did a lane change and almost caused an accident, you're like, oh, yeah, just like a fixed wing guy, you know, too fast for everybody. You're both. You are married <laughs> no to a rotary military, um, rotary aircraft, military pilot. I don't know why. I thought I thought I he was know. like an F-18 that or an F-22 happen? guy. I'm, pardon me. I'm <laughs> way off.
1: <laughs> yeah, he is a helicopter pilot like me
0: he's a cab guy he's got a Stetson so yep oh wow very cool I I, I was I was unaware See, I, I was wondering if there are like any jokes you make but since you're both rotary but do you make jokes about fixed wing aircraft people you know are you kind of just like yeah couldn't make it in rotary aircraft school like I feel like helicopter <laughs> pilots <laughs> pretty much you pretty guys much, are a different yes. right you guys are like a different bunch because you're flying I've seen the videos like little birds and stuff and uh Um, You know, the Night Stalkers, I mean, they're like practically flying these things upside down beneath the bridge, smoking a cigar, MP5 in one hand. And, you know, they're just going crazy out there doing amazing stuff.
1: Yeah. When I was in flight school, we would have instructor pilots who this didn't happen in my cockpit, but students within my class they would have stories because a lot of the instructor pilots were old Vietnam pilots. So then, you know, after they get out of the military, their helicopter pilots, they come and they teach like the newer generation of pilots, military pilots. And they would, the Vietnam pilots were the absolute best guys in the world. They had the most amazing stories. And yeah, one guy was even like, I didn't know what to do. I got in my car, I got in the helicopter. And like, once we got up to altitude, like you just started smoking and <laughs> we just are laughing because obviously that's like no longer allowed, but back in Vietnam days, like that's what they did.
0: Well, that, that is kind of amazing having, having been, you know, I remember when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan because you, you watch some of these movies and like every American Vietnam movie, for example, everyone's walking around shirtless, smoking, Drinking beer on base all the time, right? That's when they're back on base, you're smoking cigarettes, you're drinking beer. Not a lot of, I didn't see a lot of beer drinking in theater. They, they definitely got rid of the British, would do it though. The British were always, you know, able to, uh, which I thought was interesting.
1: Yes. Yes. They got rid of um, all of that uh, in today's military. My, one of my flight instructors though, he was, um, I actually write about this in my book, Danger Close, when he, uh, he didn't drink alcohol. He never drank alcohol, but everybody else in his uh, company drank alcohol. And he said he was so sick wherever they were in Vietnam. He was so sick of never getting any mail runs that everybody was too hungover to like work or fly the next day. So we literally like took a helicopter, didn't tell anybody flew to whatever base has the mail loaded up the hel- helicopter with all of their mail and then flew it back to everybody. Cause he was so sick of waiting around.
0: Well, I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was a hero to everybody who wanted to get some mail Different from back times. home. Very, very good for morale. <laughs> that's for sure. Speaking of morale. good for morale, I'm going to have you help settle this bet, um, uh, which is not really a bet, a, a debate in the in the Sexton household between Mister and Missus Sexton. And I keep my voice down because when I'm recording this, she might be able to hear me. So I'm like, I'm like, I don't want anyone to know. Um, I love bulldogs. You and your husband, right? You are English bulldog people. And people give me all this stuff. They say, oh, they have all the health issues and they snore and all that stuff. But I try to tell them I will find the snoring adorable because it's English bulldog snoring. It's not gross human snoring. Help sell right now. (laughs) She'll listen to this. I'll tell her about this. Help sell Mrs. Sexton on the English bulldog, which you have as a breed.
1: So I have been obsessed since i saw one on the gift card when i was probably like 12 years old and that was my dream i wanted to get a bulldog ever since then um when my husband got engaged and you know we were gonna get married i started sending him photos and videos on a daily basis of bulldog puppies interacting they're like everywhere on instagram Um, So just start tagging her, start tagging her on like every single cute video that you see and get it in her brain. And she's going to come around. She's going to wrinkly and smushy and how cuddly and there is nothing like a bulldog personality out there. They're stubborn, but hilarious. And they're the most loyal dogs, the best cuddlers. And they do snore. They're a little stinky every now and then. But I mean, is there a dog that isn't?
0: I was going to say, it's who is it? You know what I mean? It's you know, a we Come back. You know, humans, we come back from the gym or whatever. It can be a little rough sometimes. Got to <laughs> leave the shoes out the back door. Like, you know, it's not. I don't, I don't see that as such a big issue. Um, I told you, I'm already doing the bulldog uh, propaganda from Instagram. I'm sending her a little bulldog uh, photos of puppies and things. So we'll see. But she likes, bi- she's a big dog person. This is the thing we keep coming. She wants a big dog. Like, you know, 80 pounds. Are you
1: guys or- looking at a Frenchie or an uh, English?
0: I want an I mean I want an English. If I'm just going to get one I'm going to yeah. get an English bulldog. So, yeah, that's the plan. So maybe you might have well, to give me Well, the
1: good your... news A lot of people think that English aren't very athletic, but if you do have a bulldog I and mean, you train them when they're young, they will they're like good walking dogs if you get the right harness. Um but you got to start them young. And they're also very like fast sprinters and they can jump extremely high. So throwing Frisbees, throwing a ball, like they are outdoor dogs. Like you can get them out there. It's kind of like up to the owner. If you want them to be like lazy couch dogs and that's all they do from when they're puppies, that's all they do. But it, like you want to get them outside and like have them go play at the park. Like they love that too.
0: Amber, your book, uh, danger close. People should get a copy of it. They don't already. I know you're working on another book which we'll have you back uh, when that is published to talk about, obviously. But anything else, uh, anywhere else people should look for your, your work, your commentary, all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, you can always see what I am up to lately on officialambersmith.com, and then you can follow along on Instagram or Twitter at AmbersmithUSA.
0: Awesome. Amber, thank you so much. Um, we'll talk to you again soon.
1: Thanks, Buck. Great to see you.
0: Who is there for heroes of the families left behind when a service member or first responder dies or is catastrophically injured in the line of duty? Who helps our country's homeless veterans and who helps our nation to never forget 9-11? Let me tell you who the tunnel, towers foundation, the foundation's gold star fallen, first responder, smart home and homeless veteran programs comprise their in the line of duty programs. They're all dedicated to honoring our nation's heroes and their families. The Foundation's Never Forget programs engage people in 9-11 remembrance across America. Over 80 runs, walks, and climbs a year. Dozens of golf outings. And the Tunnel to Towers 9-11 Institute is educating kids kindergarten through 12th grade to help our nation keep its vow to never forget. More than 95 cents of every dollar you donate to Tunnel to Towers goes to its programs. Never forget the sacrifices of our country's greatest heroes. Donate $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T the number two T dot org.